Would you open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ezra again, the second chapter. This is our third week in studying Ezra and Nehemiah. Fitting books for us to study as we plan to build a house for the church of Jesus Christ. And this week we turn to the book of Ezra, the second chapter. We'll be reading the whole chapter, a chapter that many of you wish you could get up and read. I'm sure many of you would just love to pronounce all these names. Well, believe it or not, I don't enjoy it either. But this is God's Word, and it is eternally true, and there are wonderful truths in these names for us. Let us hear the Word of God. Ezra chapter 2, verses 1 through 70. Now these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. These came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bena, the number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172, the sons of Shephatiah, 372, the sons of Ara, 775. The sons of Pehath Moab, of the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2812. The sons of Elam, 1254. The sons of Zetu, 945. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Benai, 642. The sons of Babai, 623. The sons of Azgag, 1222. The sons of Adonikam, 666. The sons of Bigvi, 2056. The sons of Adon, 454. The sons of Ater of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bezai, 323. The sons of Jorah, 112. The sons of Hashem, 223. The sons of Gibar, 95. The men of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Natopa, 56. The men of Anathoth, 128. The sons of Asmaveth, 42. The sons of Kiriath-Arim, Chephirath, and Beeroth, 743. The sons of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 223. The, men of ne- the sons of Nebo, 52. By the way... If you have an NIV, do you notice that it does not distinguish what in the Hebrew is clear, which is it switches from, did you see that, from sons to men and then back to sons again. The NASB does accurately record what the Hebrew says there. Now, which one was I on? Nebo. Okay, thanks. The sons of Nebo, 52. The sons of Magvish, 156. The sons of the other, Elam, 1254. The sons of Harim, 320. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725. The men of Jericho, 345. The sons of Sina, 3630. 
The priests, the sons of Jediah of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1052. The sons of Pashur, 1247. The sons of Harim, 1017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Cadmiel of the sons of Hodaviah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, in all 139. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasipha, the sons of Tebioth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Siah, the sons of Padon, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Riah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asnah, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nephesim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakupa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Basluth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tarna, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatifa, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasathereth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jela, the sons of Darkin, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hattiel, the sons of Pokereth Hazabim, the sons of Ami, all the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. Now, these are those who came up from Tel-Mela, Tel-Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, but they were not able to give evidence of their father's households and their descendants, whether they were of Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 652. Of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hekaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, and he was called by their name. These searched among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. The governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest stood up with Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly numbered 42,360, besides their male and female servants, who numbered 7,337, and they had 200 singing men and women. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their donkeys 6,720. Some of the heads of fathers' households, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered willingly for the house of God to restore it on its foundation. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas and 5,000 silver minas and 100 priestly garments. Now the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their cities and all Israel in their cities. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, to hear this read out loud. You have a difficult time enough 
reading this when you're going through the Bible in a year. You know, you stifle a yawn and you plow through. But reading this kind of thing publicly is very weird, isn't it? And you can't help but wonder what on earth is the point of putting in all these names. Well, here we have a record of the lineage of the direct blood relationships of all the people that were returning to the land. And a few weeks ago, as we studied the beginning of the book of Ezra, we pointed out that there are three main theological, I pointed out that is, that there are three main theological themes of Ezra and Nehemiah, that there first is only one true God. Second, that this God, Jehovah, has made a covenant with his people. And third, that this God has chosen to use means in his work and that those means or those tools are always present in this world as we see him gathering his people together. I want to look more closely at the second theme today. This theme of God, Jehovah, making a covenant with his people. A covenant that he will not fail to keep. They are his peculiar people, his holy people, his set-apart people. And the most visible manifestation of this in the Old Testament is the act of circumcision. But there are many things that set them apart. The whole ceremonial law is an elaborate mechanism to set apart the people of God from the people of the world. They are his peculiar people. They are holy. They belong to him. And it's not because there's something about them as a nation that commends themselves to God. Uh, It is not because they're particularly numerous. It's not because they're particularly strong or good-looking. But it's because they were little and of no account that God chose to set his mark on them and to have them be known by his name. To Nehemiah then, as he writes to Ezra, to all of the people who came back and returned from the exile. Jehovah is not a God, but he is their God. They would say he is my God. And to all Israel, he was our God. A God who had rescued them from Egypt and who still to this day was fulfilling the words of his prophets by bringing his people home from their exile. These are his covenant people, and they shall return to their land with tears of joy at the end of the 70 years, just as he promised them through his servants, the prophets. It's true that only a remnant would return, but it's true that the remnant would return. Isaiah 10.22, For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. And so here we see in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra an account of this first return of the people of God. And who was it who returned? Well, last week we studied a particular aspect of the people, namely what it says in verse 5 of chapter 1. And if you look there with me, we will remind ourselves what it was that we saw a couple of weeks ago. There we read in verse 5 of chapter 1 about the people that returned what? We read, Then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. It was those that the Spirit of God had stirred who returned to rebuild 
the altar and to rebuild the temple. God had moved their hearts and so it was their desire not to stay in the land of their uh, sophistication, wealth and abundance, but really to go off on a missionary journey and to go back to a place that had little to commend it, where there wasn't all of the civilization, where all the wealth of Persia and the conquest was not overflowing in abundance to them, and to literally pick up the scraps of stones and to begin the work. God had moved in their hearts, and so they did this. But it it is very interesting that this is not all that is said about the people that that returned. The only thing we're told is not that they were willing, but then in chapter 2 we're told much, much more about these returnees because it gives us what information about them? It gives us their genealogy. Now, why? Why this seemingly meaningless list of people here in Ezra chapter 2? Be honest. Every time you read the Bible, be honest. Think about how things look to you truthfully and uh, realize that this seems to be one more example of an ancient people group who have patriarchal ways, who are fuddy-duddy, who think about their dads and their dad's dads and really have not quite come into the modern period. And, you know, we have a lot of affection for them because Jesus was a Jew. But really, it doesn't serve much use to us. We can see how they were sort of connected to things like this. And, uh, but for us, it's not really a very important thing, is it, these genealogies? And yet, if you come to think of it, ask yourself, how often do genealogies appear in Scripture? Ask yourself this. How often in Scripture does it make some point about the lineage of the people of God? Ask yourself how often we see these genealogies, these lines of descent. Some time ago I was reading a book I was given for Christmas, which is a collection of profiles uh, of individuals. And uh, I read recently the profile of Johnny Carson. And uh, I'm grew up in a home that was devoid of television, but I have, I, I think, many times seen the Johnny Carson show when it was on. And I was very interested to read that back in February 2nd of 1977, Alex Haley, the author of Roots, and you remember that um, there was a hit series uh, that ABC uh, broadcast that came out of Haley's book Roots, well, he was a guest on the Johnny Carson show on September, February 2nd, 1977. And during the interview, um, he asked Johnny Carson what he knew about his roots. And Johnny Carson said that he really knew nothing beyond the fact that he had grandparents and that they lived into their 90s. And I think it was his uh, father's parents, his paternal grandparents, he said he was very close to. But he said before that, he was completely oblivious to his ancestors. Well, at that point, Alex Haley reached down, picked up a book, and it was a very ornate leather-bound book, and he handed it to Carson, and uh, he gave it to him as a gift. And it was inscribed uh, on the front of the leather cover, Roots of Johnny Carson, a tribute to a great American entertainer. 
And inside he had signed it with warm best wishes to you and your family from the family of Kuntakinte. Well, what had happened was that Haley had hired Salt Lake City's Institute of Family Research uh, to do a job in two days that it would normally take them many weeks to do. They had ended up employing uh, 15 researchers who had worked 48 hours straight and put together over 400 pages of Johnny Carson's lineage. And it included uh, bio biographical sketches of some of the more famous people, uh, one of whom was not Kit Carson. Uh, <laughs> it's the only Carson I know in history. Um, but interestingly enough, one of his ancestors was John Paul Jones. Um, and he was, I think, the only really famous one. And the reason I'm telling this story is that when Haley gave this book to him, uh, Ed McMahon said, and Ed had worked with Johnny for many years by then, he said that it was one of only two times that he had ever seen Carson cry. Isn't that interesting? Why would Johnny Carson cry when given such a gift? What is it about the names and histories of our ancestors, those that have gone before us, that's so moving to us? And why do we make a big deal out of it? Well, whatever it is that causes us to be moved by this and to trace our own ancestors back in history, we can be confident that there's some substance to it because Scripture does it also. We might be inclined to skip over genealogies, but if we have a high view of Scripture, we must admit that these verses, too, have a purpose. And that their purpose is not for someone else only, but also for us. Remember the promise of Scripture, 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, and it begins with a little word, and the word is what? All. All Scripture is inspired by God, God breathed, Theopneustos, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, as I said, many places in Scripture record genealogies. I'm not going to ask you to turn with me, but let me just read you a few of the places that these show up. And this is just a tiny, tiny sampling. Genesis 5.1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him. Genesis 6.9, these are the generations of Noah. Genesis 25.19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac. Genesis 37.2, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. See the family network. Exodus 6:16, 6, And these are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon and Kohath and Merari. Numbers 18.23, But the Levites shall do the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that among the children of Israel they have no inheritance. So the whole 
future of this tribe, generation to generation, is a, can, is a function of their ancestry. Deuteronomy 7.9, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Ruth 4.18, Now these are the generations of Pharaohs. Pharaohs begat Hezron and so on. First Chronicles, Chronicles are filled with genealogies and ancestral lists. First Chronicles 8.28, these were the heads of the fathers by their generations, chief men these dwelt in Jerusalem. The book of Job, the 42nd chapter, the 16th verse, after this lived Job 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons even four generations. Isaiah 41.4, who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? The Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. And then, of course, I'll have recourse to return to this promise, but uh, let us note the promise that is given to Abraham in Genesis 17, beginning with verse 6. God says to him, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your Descendants after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you. Throughout their generations, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, the problem I have, if I, were, if I were preaching in a time when the prophets were preaching and I were to end here, everybody would be quite confident that this was exactly the religion that they believed in. But we are in a modern or postmodern day and so we think, well, yes, but that's Old Testament. But then look at what we begin the New Testament with. Turn to Matthew chapter 1, please. Now, if you've heard a sermon on Matthew chapter 1, I would say that it's a certainty that the sermon you heard on chapter 1 was a sermon that focused on one or two names and showed how the lineage that God uses is not necessarily according to the bloodline of Israel. Uh, but there's a more basic point to be made from Matthew chapter 1. I'm sorry, I think I said Genesis chapter 1. And what is that more basic thing? Well, look at verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father. And so the way it begins is giving the purpose of the genealogy. And the purpose of the genealogy is to show the actual lineage of Jesus. 
So here we have, beginning the New Testament, a record of the blood descent from which Jesus came. So what's the purpose of that? Well, look again at another gospel. Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, beginning with verse 23, speaking of the beginning of Christ's ministry, it says this, When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of... And again, we have this same theme. We have the bloodline of Jesus held up to us we are shown what it is that his generations are. We are given them, and it goes on and on. The son of being the connective tissue for this story. And then at verse 38, it ends, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, while it is true that in the New Testament, we are cautioned about genealogies in two ways. First, we are cautioned against thinking presumptuously that blood lineage automatically confers salvation. And second, we are cautioned against having endless debates over genealogies consume our time and to consume the church. In 1 Timothy 1, 2 to 5, it says, To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And then Titus 3, verse 9, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And so there are cautions made in Scripture. There are dangers connected with genealogies. One of the problems of the modern mind is that we have a perpetual tendency to uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater. We think that the illegitimate use of a good thing invalidates its legitimate use. We think that because sometimes stereotypes are used to oppress people, that therefore stereotypes can never be true. But of course, uh, this is not true. Uh, stereotypes are often, one might even say, usually true. And an exception doesn't disprove the stereotype. And... We have a similar thing with the lineage uh, lists of the Bible. The fact that we have in the time of Christ um, religious leaders who are prepared to say, we are children of Abraham. We have Moses as our father. And Jesus says, no, the devil is your father. does not mean that Luke and Matthew were mistaken to put genealogy lists at the beginning of their Gospels. It doesn't mean that in the Old Testament all of the records of the blood descent 
that are given over and over again in Scripture have no application to God's New Testament people. In the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, it's clear that genealogies are not in an end. Even and especially the genealogies of the children of Israel. Now, about this time, uh, those of you who have ever read the book of Romans are thinking, well, what about Romans 9? So let's look there, please. We have here a section where the Apostle Paul is dealing with the question of the ingrafting of us who are Gentiles in the church of Jesus Christ in Zion in the children of Israel. And he's grieving and lamenting over what this means for his own people, the Jews. And there we read, I am telling the truth, verse 1, in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God-blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Now, most Bible-believing Christians today in this country have been taught by that text to think of everything in a spiritual sense and to completely dismiss anything physical, anything bloodline-ish. But as we move on and we keep reading this whole section, we come to chapter 11, and there we see the corrective to much American doctrinal error, where we see in chapter 11, Paul continues in this same subject. He says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. What's this? He just got done saying that the true descent is a spiritual thing. And yet now he returns to it and he says, For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? And then if you'll skip down to verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, <laughs> were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. 
And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. And then look at verses 24 to 26. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Now, what's my point in reading this? Well, my point in reading this is that it is a, a dangerous conceit of Gentile Christians to think that all of the former ways that God had of dealing with people are past, and now everything is spiritual and individual. Spiritual and individual. And this is a great error in Scripture. This is not what Scripture teaches us. Jesus' descent is traced back through a lineage to the beginning, at the very beginning of two of the four Gospels, and then in the book of Revelation, his lineage is again clarified where it says in Revelation 22:16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And so the corporate identity of the people of God, God's covenant people, who were chosen from among the pagan hordes to set his loving kindness upon that corporate identity is not yet complete. The Jews, the children of Israel, are still referred to in the New Testament, particularly in Romans chapter 11, as what? Natural branches. And we see all through Scripture this concept of the corporate identity, of the, of the identity of the group as opposed to the identity of the individual. Now, none of us like to see this. The most well-known negative aspect of this, of course, is original sin. It's the teaching of Scripture that in Adam we all died, that we all became sinners. But there are other aspects negatively. For instance, you remember what happened to Achan. But I'll bet you remember more what happened to Achan's family. When he took what he ought not to have taken, what happened to his family? They had a corporate identification with the head of their home. And God himself decreed the punishment. And we read in Joshua 7, 24 and 25, Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them up to the valley of Acre. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. The negative aspect of corporate identification in Scripture. And God makes this a law explicitly in a number of places. Deuteronomy 13, beginning with verse 12. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to live in, anyone saying that some worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods... 
whom you have not known, then you shall go and investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly. And if it is true in the matter established that this abomination has been done among you, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it and all that is in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. Ten Commandments, Exodus 24, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." And if you go through the Old Testament, you will find many places where this corporate identification is alluded to simply by the little construction that when one of God's people dies, it says, for instance, in Genesis 15.15, that God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall what? You shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. And this is a constant method of referring to the death of these patriarchs, that they were gathered to their people, that they went to their fathers. H. Wheeler Robinson, in a little booklet, says this. He says, The extension of the living family to include its ancestors, or as we should rather say, the extension of the ancestors to include the living members of the family, is best expressed in these familiar faces of being gathered to our fathers. You know, it is impossible for us to understand either the Old or the New Testaments without meditating on the identity of the group and the way individuals were seen to belong to the group, specifically the people of God and the nation of Israel. In this little booklet, Robinson draws to a conclusion one of his chapters by pointing to Uh, the art of the ancient world versus the art of the modern world in this tension between the corporate identity and individualism. And I want to read this little section. He points out and makes reference to a famous uh, art historian, and he says this. He says, Egyptian wall paintings, and of course Egyptian wall paintings would have been the milieu that the uh, Israelites lived in, this corporate identification. Egyptian wall paintings show the absence of all perspective and a stereotyped rectangular view of the subject. This is the unconscious result of that community emphasis of which Egypt is so striking an example. On the other hand, perspective drawing in the full sense did not come in till our own Renaissance times and was itself connected with the rise of modern individualism since perspective always implies a particular and an individualized point of view. Thus, the ancient drawings in the flat would be something like the popular ballad or myth, a product of the corporate personality of Egypt, a view of things as all might see them. The illustration is a useful one to remember, for it may remind us always to get back from our own modern standpoint to that more corporate and social view of things which is so striking a feature of the Old Testament. The modern man stands alone. And how do you stand? Do you stand alone? 
What is your identity as a believer? When you read genealogies, what do you think? Well, they used to be corporate people, but we're individualists now. The modern man stands alone, but you know what? The believer in Jesus Christ stands corporately. He stands corporately with Jesus Christ, his second Adam. He stands corporately with Adam, his first Adam. He confesses that he is a sinner under a sentence of eternal death through the first Adam and that by faith in the second Adam, he identifies corporately with the righteousness of his Messiah. He is a completed Jew in his corporate identification with the second Adam. The modern Christian stands corporately with the household of faith. The modern Christian might have everything in him seeking to speak of his spiritual life as an individualistic thing, but then he remembers the the, the chapter of Scripture, Psalm 87, that my brother preached on, where it says over and over again that God knows those who are born in Zion. It's a very interesting construction that God says very clearly that those who are born in Zion, he has a special eye for that he knows them. It says in Psalm 87, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Now, why would it say more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob if God is a God of the individual, of the household? If all that matters is that you have a father who knows God and who baptizes and gives communion to his children, why would God say that he cares more about Zion than he cares about the individual houses of Jacob? Jacob is his son. Jacob is part of the family of God. But God says that he delights in Zion. And you have this corporate dream all through Scripture. You have it over and over and over and over again. And those who would say that it's just a gnarly Old Testament, ancient and sort of weird thing, all right, come right away in the New Testament. They hit at the beginning of the book of Matthew, then right away at the beginning of the book of Luke, and then, funny thing, all through the book of Acts, over and over again, you see that households become Christian. Not individuals. Households. And you see, the promises are made what? The promises to you and to your children. And yes, the promise is qualified by saying all those that God will call. It's qualified by saying that those who believe, and it was the same in the Old Testament, it was those who were spiritual Israel, but that didn't cause them to stop keeping genealogies. And so we have time after time in Scripture, over and over again, in the Old Testament, as it points to the New Testament, this is what it says. It says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Pointing forward to the new covenant. And then in the New Testament, Peter preached to the Jews and he says, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers. 
And in 1 Corinthians 7.14 it says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. Completely turning on its head everything we think about individualism. Well, if there's any corporate identity, it's the identity of the wife under her husband. And yet here we have an unbelieving husband sanctified. And we've got these bloodlines, these lineages, these households. And we see that God is still delighted to work through families and households. Now, here's the question. What application does this have to us? To you. Well, if I were to ask you, you've heard me say this. I have said a number of times, only half-jokingly, that if the Church of Jesus Christ really wants to get serious about missions, they will take a part of their missions budget every year and use it to reverse vasectomies among the people of God. If I were to ask you, and I'm going to ask you, how many of you had parents who truly believed and who raised you in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Raise your hands. Look around, people. Now, there are a number here whose hands aren't raised. They have been grafted in. But the norm in the church of Jesus Christ from beginning to end is always that God is delighted to work through families. You come and you see the Pine Box Derby race. All right? And sometimes some of us are bad fathers. But I'm sitting there in the pew watching fathers with their children at tender moments where they're either victors or losers. All right? And I see Tim Wagner. And I see him come up to the front. He has a little daughter who hasn't been obeying the rules about climbing onto the platform. And I see Tim tenderly coming up and kneeling down and putting his arm around her and leaning over and speaking into her ear. And she's barely able to understand what it means to obey and what the parameters are. But you know that when Tim gets done speaking to his daughter, that his daughter will obey. And I say to you, is this an anomaly? Are we so cowed by the individualistic anarchy of our culture that we can't hope that there will be covenant succession? That we can't hope that Tim Wagner will give birth to children who will rise up and call their mother blessed and will then in turn to their coming generations live out the godliness that they have seen manifested in their home. Last night I sent off, my wife doesn't know this, but I sent off my sermon to her whole family. And I wrote at the beginning of the sermon, I said, praise God, because they're coming to the end of their days from mother and dad. And I said, praise God that as I wrote this sermon, I didn't just think about Rita. I thought about my mother and I thought about my, my wife's mother, my mother in love. And the godliness that we have had pouring down on us despite ourselves. Any of you that were at the women's tea yesterday know what I mean by despite ourselves. Just take a look at our pictures when we were married. <laughs> when I'm 64 was the recessional for our wedding, eh? Pretty pathetic, huh? And our parents' godliness and their prayers, and it came down through us. Do you have faith? Do you have faith to believe that these children that you have given birth to and that you've adopted into your home, do you have faith to believe that God is still delighted to work through families? 
that His promises are to you and to your children? Or do we all have to give in to this individualism that tells us that, you know, not all Israel is Israel? And that's all it says. It doesn't go on and say all the other things in Scripture, the promises that we should claim. And yes, there are people who are grafted in. And yes, sometimes the trunk and the taproot get very, very thin. And yet God continues. He has a remnant. It's 42,000. And all of them trace their lineage. And those that don't have the lineage are not part of the group. And when Jesus came, He had to prove His lineage. If anybody should have been an individualist, it's Jesus Christ. He didn't need any of us. He didn't need our bloodlines. He didn't need to trace His ancestry. He was God. Do you have a biblical faith or do you have an American ideological, politically correct, individualistic faith? What is your faith? Do you see the dangers of the genealogies? And then do you say, nevertheless, the Lord is pleased to work through families. He's pleased to sanctify an unbelieving husband through his wife. And you've had a living example for seven years sitting in the third pew. And the example is Rita Cuffey, who had an unbelieving husband, and she did precisely what Scripture said. She submitted to him. And guess what? the Lord sanctified her husband. So, what about this corporate identity? Do you believe in it? This is a doctrinal truth. This isn't a heart truth. But if you get it here, it will have unbelievable fruit in your heart and emotions. All of a sudden, you'll see the wealth in your home and you'll begin to use it. you'll begin to have authority over your sons as they choose what videos and what movies to go. Because you'll see yourself protecting the covenant succession of your children. You won't be presumptuous. You won't think, well, I'm a Christian, so my son's going to be a Christian. You see Tim Wagner acting like that? No, it's hard work, but we work knowing that God delights in giving rebirth to the children of His children. He loves bloodlines and lineages and the whole world apes him he didn't learn it from the Mormons (laughs) you know the Mormons have some sense just like the people that sacrifice the roosters and have the blood they testified without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sins and today Our corporate identification is the church of Jesus Christ. This is Zion. This is our home. These are the people. These are the names. And how sad that some were not able to give evidence of their father's households and their descendants, whether they were of Israel. Are you of Israel? Are you a grafted-in part of the cultivated olive tree. Is Zion your birthright? One day, will there be those who trace their lineage back to you and they say, Esther was my grandmother or Esther was my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. 
You ever seen the lists of the lineages of, of, of Jonathan Edwards? Let's pray.